You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the link to our GoFundMe campaign on bobcudmore.com. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore along with Dave Green. Dave, I want to talk about some uh, stories that I wrote during the last year, 2021, and make a podcast out of it. It's kind of, I, I guess it's going to be like a patchwork quilt. Do you remember those, Dave? I, I do. They're still around, certainly. Uh, that brings to mind the question to ask you, Bob, is in, in the course of a year, you write at least, what, 52 stories for the Gazette? Yes, indeed. So we yes. have a, a number to choose from. All right. So anyway, you're going to start, I believe, with us, if I have your information correct, you have a story about Laddie Sanford. Yeah, Laddie Sanford, part of the carpet family, the carpet baron family, the people that owned a good portion of the mills in Amsterdam, New York, my hometown. And we frequently have stories about Stephen Sanford, who was Laddie's grandfather. Uh, In all honesty, they had the same name, Stephen and Laddie, and I'll explain in a moment why Laddie became Laddie. And somehow it seems that we just sort of use Laddie as a footnote on a lot of the stories. Maybe spend more time talking about the original Stephen Sanford, and then uh, Stephen Sanford's son, who was Laddie's father, John Sanford, and then Laddie's sister, who was uh, Gertrude Sanford, uh, who became known or probably had the most interesting life of all of them. She was a a spy during World War II. She ended up uh, operating a big southern plantation in South Carolina, or a big home in in South Carolina. A lot of the Sanfords uh, gravitated toward uh, warmer climates. But what about Laddie? That's the question, Dave. What about Laddie? I don't know if if families are are like that universally, but it it seems that um, Laddie just doesn't get the attention of, uh, of some of them. No, well, I think I know some of the information you're going to be dealing with, Bob. I mean, uh, not many of us had horses. We didn't have somebody give us a horse as a kid. Well, that's true. Well, let's go with the story. Right. The story of Laddie Sanford. Amsterdam carpet baron Stephen Sanford doted on his grandchildren, in particular his namesake, who was born in 1898 up in Amsterdam. The elder Sanford gave the boy a Shetland pony, almost before the youngster could walk. Young Stephen called the pony Laddie, and the grandfather thought that was great and started calling the grandson Laddie, so that became uh, Laddie's uh, nickname. Stephen Sanford died in 1913, a very wealthy man. The man who inherited that wealth was Stephen's son, John, who's Laddie's father. Laddie's father took over the family carpet mills and also the family's thoroughbred horse farm. Maybe I haven't explained this. They were a carpet manufacturing family, but when Stephen Sanford was, uh, you know, very prosperous, but he was not feeling well, a doctor advised him to get a hobby. So he started the thoroughbred horse farm, which became more than hobby, but he had that in addition to the carpet mills. But the bottom line, after Stephen Sanford died, he left almost $40 million 
to his son John in 1913, which was worth, you know, a multiple of that today because we're talking money back in 1913. Laddie was more a playboy than an industrialist. I mean, his father John, grandfather Stephen, they were the ones that really got involved in running the carpet mills. I think that um, uh, maybe Stephen more than John, and both Stephen and John loved the horse racing, but Laddie just kind of loved the horse racing as opposed to the carpet mills, so that's my uh, judgment, not even having known Laddie. But Laddie grew up to become an international polo-playing star. He went to Yale. Rich, Rich folks used to go to Yale quite a lot. Well, I guess they still do. The head trainer at the Sanford Horse Farm was a man named Holly Hughes, and Hughes arranged for Laddie to buy a horse named Sergeant Murphy. And the horse, and this was uh, true for the Sanford Stud Farm, they tended to train steeplechase horses, horses that jumped. So the uh, horse Sergeant Murphy won the Grand National Steeplechase in England in 1923. Again, this is Laddie's horse, and it was the first time an American owner had won that race. And I'm not really sure I see why this was seen worthy of being the cover of Time magazine, but for some reason Time magazine thought it was. And there's a picture of Laddie Sanford, the owner of Sergeant Murphy, on the cover of Time back in 1923. So Laddie Sanford's becoming well-known polo player, horseman, that sort of thing. And so he he, uh, toddles off to Hollywood, gets involved in the motion picture social life, and he married movie actress Mary Duncan. She was a woman from Virginia. Um, They got married, Laddie and Mary, in 1933. Uh, critics had praised her work in the Broadway play, The Shanghai Gesture, and she went to Hollywood. Her credits there, and, and, and a Dave Green question's coming up, her credits there included State's Attorney with John Barrymore in 1932 and Morning Glory in 1933 with Katherine Hepburn. While making Five and Ten, another movie, Duncan became friends with the film's lead, Marion Davies, who introduced her to Laddie Sanford after a polo match. And Davies, you may know, was the mistress, not the wife, but the mistress of media tycoon William Randolph Hearst. Now, Dave, I often turn to you for knowledge of movies. Have you heard of any of these uh, movies, The Shanghai Gesture and uh, State's Attorney, Morning Glory five and ten. I've heard of Morning Glory. I think I've, I think I have seen that movie with uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn. You say right? Yeah, she was in it. There. Yeah, and five, no five and ten strikes me as being. I want to uh, send an email to Turner Classic Movies and say please show it because I don't think I've ever seen it. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they'll do that for you. After Mary Duncan, the actress, and Laddie Sanford married, she retired from acting. She opted to be the wife of a wealthy individual. And they made their home at Los Incas, uh, which was a mansion that they owned in Palm Beach, Florida. That's the other coast, of course. So they journey from California back 
east but end up being not in Amsterdam uh, but in Florida. Mary, uh, Mary Sanford, reigned over Palm Beach Society for 50 years. Her charitable work was extensive. She was friends with Rose Kennedy, who was a neighbor, and they entertained the King and Queen of Jordan and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. She and Laddie also hosted King Saud at, uh, of Saudi Arabia, a dinner where, keeping with Muslim tradition, no alcohol was provided and there was no smoking. And I do believe that Laddie Sanford enjoyed both of those activities. The Sanford Carpet Company of Amsterdam, to get back to that, I mean, that's still the basis for the wealth of the Sanford families, but the Sanford Carpet Company in 1929 merged with a New England carpet maker called Bigelow Hartford. The new company was called Bigelow Sanford. Tragedy struck Amsterdam's Sanford Stud Farm in 1939, the horse farm, when fire destroyed a barn, killing 25 thoroughbred horses and a watchdog. John Sanford, Laddie's father, died later that year, and ownership of the farm passed to John's son, Laddie, and to Laddie's sisters, Gertrude Sanford Lejeune and Sarah Jane Sanford Panza. We're now up to, to World War II in our little walk through Laddie Sanford's life. His sisters uh, in World War II, in World War II, Gertrude was a spy for the Americans in Europe, captured and held by the Nazis for six months until she escaped to Switzerland. And it's kind of interesting with his other sister. Uh, in 1937, Sarah Jane Sanford married Italian diplomat and polo player Mario Panza in Palm Beach, Florida, in an exclusive society wedding. And they lived much of the war in Italy. And it's hard to cut this any differently. I would say that Mr. Panza was part of Mussolini's government, or he'd been a been a diplomat, but uh, Sarah Jane lived in Italy. Uh, after the war, she was able to come back to the United States, and then her husband uh, died. But we're di diverting from Laddie Sanford. Laddie Sanford, well, let me ask you this, Dave. I know you've served in uh, the U.S. Army. Can you imagine what Laddie Sanford, the horseman, did in the U.S. Army? Well, I, I do admit, I think you have told me. Let's see if I can remember what you told me. He, let, let's guess, Bob, what's the obvious? He trained horses. That's what he did. I know it. He, he became a captain in the Army, and he headed a horse training unit in Fort Robinson, Nebraska, during World War II. A man I uh, came to know um, who w was a jockey for the uh, Sanford family, Lou Hildebrandt, was drafted and, you know, somehow got a gig or whatever you want to call it with, uh, with Captain Sanford out in uh, Nebraska training the horses. Probably not a bad way to spend the war, if you think about it. But what, why they were training the horses is they still used horses and mules in uh, wartime, and they needed them in particular for the fighting over in the Far East. Well, the war ended, we get into the post-war era, and uh, Laddie Sanford continues his 
life in Florida, but he comes up to uh, Saratoga, for example, during the uh, summer month of August in maybe stays in Amsterdam or stays in Saratoga Springs and gets involved in that. But on the carpet front, Bigelow Sanford and the other carpet companies are having difficulty. Most of the carpet mills at the time are located in the northern United States, cities such as Amsterdam. But in 1955, Bigelow Sanford announced it was leaving Amsterdam and consolidating manufacturing at its plant in New England, which was in Thompsonville, Connecticut. The news shocked Amsterdam, but brought joy to Thompsonville. The move eliminated over 1,600 jobs in Amsterdam. It really accelerated Amsterdam's decline. Uh, It seems like uh, from that moment on, even though there was still a lot of employment in Amsterdam, it was not the uh, booming uh, industrial city that uh, had existed before. The governor of New York, Averill Harriman, also a wealthy man like Laddie Sanford, was not pleased with this uh, development, and Harriman pressured Laddie, uh, the company's largest stockholder, was Laddie Sanford, to do what he could to save jobs in Amsterdam. Look that up, and I think it was a recorder or AP story. Uh, the reporters uh, tracked down Laddie Sanford, who at the time was living in Florida, who said, quote, Conditions in the carpet industry are very bad, making it necessary for us to cut down on our overhead, unquote. By 1971, Bigelow Sanford, which had moved its manufacturing from Amsterdam to its other factory in Connecticut, had, but by 1971, Bigelow Sanford closed its Thompsonville mills and moved manufacturing to southern states. Uh, I got a little bit out of chronological order there because before 71, 1965, Laddie Sanford had a stroke and was not you know, well the rest of his life and died in 1977. Mary Sanford, his wife, lived until 1993. They had no children. But here's the interesting thing, I thought. They are buried at Amsterdam's Green Hill Cemetery. The cemetery listed on the State National Register of Historic Places is adjacent to City Hall, the former Sanford Mansion. The Sanfords had donated uh, that building, their former mansion, to the city for use as a city hall, which continues to this day in 1932. Let me ask you something, Bob. Pretty thoroughly covered that story. It's obvious that Laddie never worked. He was a playboy. They had all that money. Why bother? Do you think he was a happy man? Well, that's a good question. I, I would say, in uh, to a, lar- a large extent, he was, especially if he was involved with horses. You know what I mean? And that that was what he loved, as his grandfather loved, and I think his father too. I mean, they they made their money at the carpet mill, but they enjoyed horse racing and racing horses, in Laddie's case, riding horses and playing polo and that kind of thing. But otherwise, I'm sure he, maybe he didn't like it when the governor of New York, Avril Harriman, is hounding him about why you're moving out of Amsterdam. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, along with Dave Green, telling a few stories that I write about in 
Focus on History, which appears in the Amsterdam Recorder and the Daily Gazette. And this particular uh, column I wrote uh, in 2021, it ran toward the end of the year, headlined Remembering Amsterdam. And it's about three men who contributed many stories to focus on history over the years. The men uh, were Fred Wojcicki, Bert DeRose, and Sean Duffy. All of them have passed away. Fred Wojcicki was born in 1926. His family lived on Hibbard Street, which is up in the east end of Amsterdam. Then they moved to Matthias Avenue when Fred was just one year old. Neighbors there included John Gamulka, who became mayor, and Andrew Selmer, who became police chief. Fred Wojcicki played baseball for St. Stanislaus Roman Catholic Church. Only one of Wojcicki's childhood chums had a bicycle, but he let the other kids ride around the block for five cents a trip. I'm going to ask my friend Dave about that. Do you remember a, a kid like that in your neighborhood? Oh, you're, you're, Bob, you're talking, you're talking about a lot of youngsters who were going to be or were already big-time capitalists. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah, charge you five cents a trip. Yeah, it said it won't cost you much, but you may want to take a second trip. I'll make 10 cents. You'll have a nice time. Yeah, I remember hearing tell of one uh, gentleman when he was a, a kid have, telling his friends in the East End that, well, they could come over and play this new game. I don't know what it was. It wasn't Monopoly, but it was some kind of game. But it's going to cost you a quarter yeah, a game. It goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, anyway. That's what happened to Fred Wojcicki when he was uh, young. Uh, he wrote also uh, as follows. In the winter months for the young people, it was skating at Carps Park off Church Street, Amsterdam High on Brant Place, or roller skating across from St. Mary's Church in a building on East Main Street, which later became Kent Buick. Now, Dave, you know well that this is just removed from my experience. I didn't ice skate. I didn't roller skate. Did you get involved in either of those activities? I think maybe I gave roller skating a try at some given point. But, well, when you started telling me about this particular aspect of the story, I immediately began to Harken back, as we often say, to uh, were they all being charged for these activities? <laughs> well, they, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think the ice skating you could just do it, uh-huh. depend, depending where where you went. Folks, if but, you, if you knew Bob Cudmore, you know there's this there's this huge gap in history, if you want to word it that way, between Bob Cudmore and anything of the sort: roller skating, ice skating, or or mechanical devices. Not, yeah, or anything not athletic, his thing, right? Not his thing. But there's obviously, you know, we're talking about Fred Wojcicki. There are serious things that happened to Fred as well. For example, Fred's older brother was Joe Wojcicki, who went ashore in France during the Normandy invasion, died after being wounded at St. Lo. He had been a weaver at Mohawk Carpet Mills. Fred joined the Navy, served with the Navy Seabees in Guam and other locations in World War II. Fred moved to California in 1963. He was a paint salesman. He worked at Standard Brands Paint. Paint. Divorced from his first wife, Fred married Phyllis Wood Gibbons in California. She was a hairdresser and often did work for the Hollywood studios, so gave Fred a chance to meet some 
uh, showbiz folks. Uh, Fred Wojcicki sent letters to my Focus on History column for 10 years. He died in December of 2017 at the age of 91. Another great source of information for the column over the years has been Bert DeRose, drama teacher and high school principal. Bert DeRose also contributed many Amsterdam memories to this column. He died November 28th of 2020 at age 87. His wife Barbara passed away 20 days later. When Bert DeRose was six, his family was living on River Street in Amsterdam's south side, and they had to flee their home in February 1938 during a Mohawk River flood. When the water subsided, DeRose enjoyed playing on the chunks of ice left in his backyard. He said, this was about as close as I ever got to Alaska. Got to hand it for hand it to Bert for that, you know, taking advantage of the natural lay of the land. He also told me stories about his family and extended family. His uncle, Bert's uncle, Ralph Pagliaro, Ralph Pagliaro, was the last American soldier to die in World War I. Pagliaro was a native of Italy. He was killed by a German sniper in Belgium five days before the armistice. The body was returned to Amsterdam for burial. Bert de Rose says, My grandmother wore black for over 30 years. De Rose's greatest impact on the community, though, stemmed from the years he spent directing high school plays and an annual summer musical he produced for the city's recreation department and his work as a high school principal. I always try to instill with the kids that no matter what they did for the theater, they were part of it, DeRose said. Forget about the star. Forget about the lead. There is no lead if the kid who was pulling the curtain pulls it at the wrong time. Everything, Dave, depends on everything else. That is true, and while I'm thinking about this, Bob, maybe we take a second here and explain. You're, you're talking about all of your stories from over the years, published in both the uh, Daily Gazette and now also in the Amsterdam Recorder, and I guess that's just fine if you live in Amsterdam, but because uh, all these podcasts hit who knows where on the internet, explain to us how we could attain reading some of your back, the, the archives of your stories. Well, I've archived, or most of my stories are archived at mohawkvalleyweb.com, which uh, computer science uh, professor uh, Frank Yunker uh, set up uh, some time ago. And it's a searchable database. You can enter, for example, Bert DeRose or Fred Wojcicki, and uh, all the different columns will, uh, will come up there. Can they also find the stories? Are they archived on the Daily Gazette in Schenectady? Oh, yes, the Daily Gazette does archive them as well. From time to time, uh, you know, I, I will use a, a story I'd used before or, you know, maybe a different aspect of what was going on. I, one more uh, person who was a kind of a informant for some of the stories I did, and that's Sean Duffy, Sean Kevin Duffy, contributed tales to this column on many topics, including his family's tavern in the east end of Amsterdam. Sean Duffy was born in Amsterdam in 1949. He died in 2019 at his home in Lake St. Louis, Missouri, at age 69. He was a Navy veteran 
had worked for General Electric and other firms in the turbine generator business. The tavern his family owned was called O'Shaughnessy's. It was once owned by Duffy's grandfather, Martin O'Shaughnessy, in the early 1900s. Located at East Main and Eagle Streets, in a building no longer there, Shaughnessy's, O'Shaughnessy's patrons included actor Kirk Douglas's father, a Harry Dembski. The Dembskis lived at 46 Eagle Street. Duffy wrote, The bar survived prohibition, and so many bars did not. My mom, Mary O'Shaughnessy Duffy, told me she used to help make bathtub gin when she was about 10, actually in the bathtub. Her brother, Martin Jr., who had polio, sold the moonshine off the back porch to make ends during these hard times. Also, Dave, the um, where O'Shaughnessy's was located, again, the building's been torn down, that's where the Historic Amsterdam League in the city have placed the Kirk Douglas historical marker. Uh, Kirk Douglas was not born at that spot, but it's a spot that people will more likely see, and it says on the marker that his house was down down this street, which is Eagle Street, at the at the end of the street on the left. I've seen a lot of his movies. Yes, you have. I thought the last quote from uh, Duffy was uh, interesting. Talking well, one thing, something completely different that his uncle, or maybe it was a great uncle, Martin had polio. You know, we're used to dealing with the uh, coronavirus epidemic, and I would say that back then, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, polio was the big fear that ultimately was uh, put to rest by a vaccine. Let's close this edition of the podcast with a look at something that a newspaper did a hundred years ago. The Amsterdam, New York Evening Recorder in 1909 had a circulation building contest that gave out as prizes trips to Europe. Yes, they gave out um, six, uh, I believe, trips to Europe for uh, winners of this competition. The timing was good. The tour took place four years before the nations of Europe went to war. Actually, there were five winners, and they were treated to a five-week trip that began in Montreal, Canada, included stops in Scotland, London, Amsterdam, and The Hague in the Netherlands, and also Paris. On the way to Europe, the tour spent nine days on a ship of the Allen Line, the SS Praetorian, and the return trip from France was on Allen's SS Corinthian for 10 days. Friends of the five winners were expected to join the expedition, presumably to pay their own way. What did, And they were all women. What did the women do who uh, won this competition? Scores of them competed in the contest, which involved gathering ballots, some of which were printed in the recorder and the semi-weekly paper they also put out. But the greatest number of ballots came from friends and acquaintances of the contestants, who bought newspaper subscriptions or extended their newspaper subscriptions. The newspaper boasted that well over 900 uh, subscriptions were purchased. The contest rules, and here's something, uh, stated that only white women could compete. 
contestants had to be at least 16 and of good character. The greater Amsterdam area was divided into five geographical sections for the competition. I got all this information from Barbara Persico, who is a stalwart at the Historic Amsterdam League, said she stumbled across the newspaper contest when researching a woman named Henrietta Pierce, whose 1959 obituary mentioned that she was a winner of that contest. The other contest winners were Elizabeth Husted, Charlotte Keyes, Ruth Goodman, and Bertha Parkis. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.